I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, supported by DownloadTennis.com. On today's episode of The Book Club, we chat with Abby Smith about her latest book, Wimbledon's Greatest Games. Kim, we are back for another episode of the book club where we talk to guests about their latest tennis book and this week we are going to be wrapping up our Wimbledon coverage by taking a look at Wimbledon's greatest games a collection of 50 iconic matches over the years that have taken place on the lawns of SW19. I know it's very exciting and I think the perfect cure for the Wimbledon Blues now that it's all finished (laughs) for another year. Um, So it's very exciting to be joined by the author of that book, Abby Smith. Abby, welcome to The Passing Shot. How are you doing this evening? Hello, thank you for having me. Yes, I'm very well. How are you guys? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, We've just had obviously Wimbledon, which is I think pretty much our favourite tournament. I think we all discussed this beforehand. We all love Wimbledon, massive Wimbledon fans. So it is the best, isn't it? Let's be yeah. honest. We can't be biased, but let's be honest. You know, there is no <laughs> argument here. Yeah. So it's um fantastic that we get to talk more about Wimbledon um with yourself. And um you know, thanks for taking the time to come onto the show. And perhaps it would be um good for for us and our listeners if you could just kind of tell us a bit more about yourself before we get into the the book itself so you know how did you come to to write a book about you know the greatest matches at at Wimbledon of course yeah I'm just going to pour myself a pims as we talk (laughs) oh lovely the the, the mood as we as we're going along with Wimbledon um so yes I was a a journalist um for 10 years and then started writing books ghost wrote um lots of sporting titles with some famous sports stars um sort of all through the broad range of um sports um tennis I have to say I'm a bit like you Kim it was my first love and I grew up playing tennis went to Wimbledon a couple of times and just fell in love with the place um massively failed quite a few GCSEs because I was in love with watching Steffi Graf um (laughs) in that sort of era um and uh quite rightly you know should have been revising and was more interested in watching her progress through the championships each year um and so when covid obviously put a big kibosh on the championships in 2020 i was one of those fans that was just like oh there is just something there's a big hole missing in my life in this end of june beginning of july gap um and it is wimbledon and so it was a chance to sort of look back at some of the matches and relive some of the most sort of memorable, historical, significant games that have happened at Wimbledon. And it was amazing. It was so enjoyable to research those games. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, just talking about before we kind of get into matches and talking about that sort of research phase you went through, I imagine like all of us, you know, we're all kind of cooped up at home 
going through that research, uh, you know, with no Wimbledon on the on the telly, looking into all of those kind of different matches, kind of what was your kind of research kind of process when kind of, I guess, whittling down all the matches that have taken place into 50? Well, this is it. I know you fix the publisher and they're like 50 and you're like, oh, oh gosh, it might be hard to pick 50. Uh, no, it was it was whittling it down, as you say, Joel. And I knew in my mind that I wanted to have quite a broad mix. So um, sort of straight away, I wanted to have 20 gentlemen's games, 20s ladies matches and then 10 mixed and doubles because actually, you know, the doubles games have provided so much entertainment over the years. It was really worth looking into those. Um, and I have come from it not as an expert in any way, shape or form. I've had many arguments with a neighbour of mine who's a county tennis player over the best Wimbledon match ever. And, you know, <laughs> our views differ greatly on this. And I, I can't say I have a, a definitive number one spot. So the book was always meant to be a collective um, and that there isn't we can't definitively say this is the best Wimbledon match but let's look over over the years and let's have a collection of the 50 greatest splitting them up and and going from there yeah because I thought it was interesting that you haven't done it as an order um because instantly I was like surely number one's got to be Federer and Adal <laughs> well that's because you would say I was gonna say it's because you're a Rafa fan Kim but yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think when as soon as you make a countdown like that you're sort of setting yourself up for um not criticism necessarily because obviously it's there are certainly matches that are worthy of that number one spot but this was going to be more of a gentle look back but certainly more of a a rounded look back um over the matches so there wasn't ever going to be that number one spot and hence through the book you know they're really they're thrown in there in no particular order as well because it is just that round up element to it when you're kind of looking at these matches, was it kind of going on to YouTube and like watching highlights from, you know, way back in the day or, or what were the sorts of touch points you were using? Um, it was, it was a collection. Well, yeah, it was, um, so I think the BBC, they, they started off doing a, a fantastic sort of series of, um, some of the, the greatest and that sort of sparked, um, a bit of a sort of starting point for me. And then you go away and you research a bit more. I've worked with, um, quite a few photographers over the years and cameramen who I got in touch with who I knew had worked at Wimbledon over the years. And they were, um, working at Wimbledon during some of their most memorable matches. So it was really interesting talking to them about what they sort of defined as you know amazing momentous occasions um and then as you say there was lots of youtube videos there was lots of interviews to watch there was lots of fan sites to go on because i think you know as i'm a fan not an expert on this um it was interesting to hear what other people had gauged as their sort of um, number one matches or most memorable matches so i went from there but it was also done during obviously lockdown um I've got three children so it was done during homeschooling those three children which can I just say was there was a lot of alcohol drunk <laughs> jugs of pims on uh, on on uh, on tap lots of jugs of pims yes absolutely <laughs> um so it was um yeah in actual fact, I think there were certainly afternoons where homeschooling took, you know, took a bit of a breather. And we all sat down and we watched old footage. Um, so we all sort of learnt from from the book as well. That sounds like the perfect afternoon at, at right. school or homeschool for me. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. And to be fair, you know, the children, they, they get, 
you know when you're writing a book like this you you have to put your research in because you are um you know you've got to make sure that the details are right you've got to make sure you're sort of including a, a broad range um as i say i have gone perhaps a little bit heavy on steffi graph matches but <laughs> you know that's i thought you know what i'm allowed to do that and I mean, what's I think so fascinating about the fact that it is a collection and kind of taking in that kind of fan point of view that you sort of realise that there are lots of greatest games at Wimbledon for lots of different reasons. And, you know, you have matches that are memorable for, you know, being culturally significant. You have memorable matches because of individual brilliance. Uh, you have matches that are memorable for collective rivalries um, or even kind of unique partnerships you know you spoke about kind of the, the doubles element something that I think has really kind of is in this boom period at the moment we're getting these such kind of memorable and, and unique partnerships or Nick Kyrgios and Venus Williams at Wimbledon so I think what's fascinating is that there's lots of different ways to look at the greatest games and that's probably a reason why it shouldn't be a countdown because they're memorable for different reasons and absolutely now, what I'd like to do, what I'd like to do is kind of kick off a discussion between us and talk about some of the matches that you've kind of handpicked in the book, you know, with these kind of different themes. I know myself, I've got a couple of picks. I know Kim has got a couple of picks. I've no doubt Rafael Nadal is going to get mentioned at some point. <laughs> Maybe. And talk about what kind of stood out for them as being kind of really memorable. And I think for me, where I want to start with is those culturally kind of significant matches that have happened at Wimbledon and and I think me um very much because of what's just happened at the moment with Ash Barty um you know winning the ladies title for the first time at Wimbledon 50 years on from Yvonne Goulgon Corley and I want to talk about that match specifically against kind of Chris Ever in 1980 because read, read reading kind of your your words on it it was kind of fascinating to me that this was a completely different era of tennis and particularly of kind of ladies tennis. And it feels like from then on, it's just, it's just come on drastically. I mean, I think you spoke about the kind of the prize money and what the prize money was being offered at that time. And it's just remarkable how much it has changed, I think, from, you know, from that time period. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And, and and when you look at, you know, what's happening today at Wimbledon, it's just fascinating to see. You think, what was, what was the years you said? Fifty years, wasn't it? That that, that it had, just incredible how it's come on in that time. Um, and Yvonne Goulagon Corley, you know, I think she's a remarkable tennis player. Um, but my, I think my culturally, sort of significant match um I think would have to I mean it's as you say there are so many but probably Arthur Ashe um the Jimmy Commas Ginny Commas game sorry in 75 which um you know he came on Jimmy Connors was um defending champion he was you know had this sort of air of arrogance about him and Arthur Ashe sort of who actually at the time was um he had had a libel suit filed against him by Connors Arthur had called him unpatriotic because he wasn't playing for his country at the Davis Cup so there was a lot of tension before they even played um a shot in that final um so for me that you know that was ash completely as well as coming out and that being a significant game culturally he was the first black man um to win that Wimbledon title but he changed his whole game that the night before um 
and it totally threw Connors. And I think what sort of athlete is able to dictate a game and not play your usual style and not play your usual style of tennis um, in a final and win? You know, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you've got to adapt, haven't you, to whoever's down the other side of the net, but to do so like for a big final and and when you've got kind of like you could be making history you know being the first black man to win Wimbledon mm-hmm. and all of that you know all of the you know the fact there's no love loss between them off the court um yeah it's it's funny these matches you know they might not be individually like the greatest ever but within the context in which they took place there's so much on the line and like you said the tension in that match and I mean my kind of um I guess pick was similar in a way was um Althea Gibson um against Darlene Hard in 57 she was the first black woman to to win Wimbledon and what I also thought was remarkable about her victory in 57 was the fact that she also won the women's doubles she got to the final of the mixed so she was almost on for you know doing a, a sweep of all the titles and I think also the fact that um I think it was one of her compatriots had actually had to write to the U.S. Tennis Association to actually kind of denounce their original decision which would have prevented her from even being able to like travel to Wimbledon to compete and when she did turn up she was kind of so determined to win the title and that's what she went and did which I thought was remarkable. And it was brilliant because I think even her opponent in that final you I think that the photo sums it all up doesn't she you know giving her a massive congratulations kiss when she she won that trophy it was everyone was almost rooting for her weren't they because there was so much going against her and as you say to even get to Wimbledon was against her until you know people stepped in to help so yeah I I totally agree that was a great one Kim. And I think also with that, you know, obviously she's a big inspiration for players now, like Serena and, and Venus Williams. Mm-hmm. And I think also what was interesting about Joel, the one that you picked, you know, the Yvonne Goulagong winning, uh, they said, I think she was the first mother to to win Wimbledon in like 66 years. And yeah. obviously there's a lot of hype at the moment about what will Serena win another slam? You know, she's a mother now. Is she going to be able to do it? And, you know, it just kind of reminded me of, you know, this is still an I guess, uh, a talking point in the game today about, you know, whether someone can can win a slam after, you know, having had a child. (laughs) So we've come a long way, but almost we haven't because we're still having these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because, you know, we pick people who are very much, I think, trailblazers or have been trailblazers in the sport. And for some reason, they, you know, at Wimbledon, which is obviously known for kind of traditions and you know particularly I think kind of you know back in the back in the day and you get these kind of breath of fresh air kind of come along and that sort of I think those sort of opposites you know that modernization of the game versus that tradition that traditional backdrop that that Wimbledon offers it just elevates these kind of finals beyond the what you know what the scoreline is and even if you know it's not the most kind of compelling scoreline you know I think that Althea Gibson match was like three you know three three and two even though it wasn't kind of compelling as as a matchup the context of it the importance of it had bigger implications than than just being a tennis match that was the impact yeah absolutely and that was the impact wasn't it yeah yeah I'm really glad you included those those matches as well and I also really enjoyed reading about um again with the Yvonne Goulagong match the fact that that was the first ladies final to happen on a Saturday so it, it was previously on the Friday and then they moved it you know because TV was you know playing more of a role so um I really liked you know reading through the fact that you know you kind of I think you can see all the different like facets going on in tennis and it's not just the matches it's like how the sport's changing as well 
and I think that's the thing sometimes, isn't it? You watch um, a Wimbledon match and you just see it as a, say, a great game of tennis and then you sort of nitpick all the sort of details behind it about how it's sort of, you know, like we were saying, Yvonne was um, a mother or the, the date got moved on a day. There's so many little details that I think just sort of bring, make it a story and not just, you know, a game of tennis. Absolutely. And I mean, we can also look at um, the matches that were, I guess, significant as well for, for the, the tennis that was displayed. You know, not saying that those players didn't display good tennis. Of course they did. But there were matches that you kind of often sit and you think, oh, my gosh, wow, this is something special. And um, Joel, perhaps you'd like to um, tell everyone, <laughs> tell us which one that you picked out, first of all, for this for, for kind of individual brilliance, I suppose. Yes, because I noticed there were a couple of couple of matches from the same men's tournament uh, from my kind of childhood growing up. And that was kind of Goran Ivanisevic versus yeah. Tim Hemman and Goran Ivanisevic versus Pat Rafter. And, you know, I see him in the, you know, the Novak Djokovic box at the moment, uh, you know, for, for Wimbledon. And I think he's had a really big impact actually on his on his serve. But um I think it was just reminding me of of how good he was as a player. I mean, it's not every day a wild card comes along and wins a Grand Slam. I don't think that happens very often at all. And to see Goran Ivanovic just kind of go on that run, um, break British hearts, unfortunately, in that semi-final <laughs> against yeah. Edmund, um, and then kind of go on to win it in a really epic, epic, epic match against Pat Rafter that went five sets. I mean, that tournament for me really, um, you know, captivated my, I think, mind as, as a child. I just remember the rain being absolutely abysmal and... It was awful that year, wasn't it? Yeah. Penman bageling Ivanisevic in that, uh, I think, in that third set. And I thought, okay, this is this is Hedman's time. But the British, the British <laughs> oh, weather no. god sort of conspired against him, didn't they? Yeah. But um, it was, again, it was for me a, a time, I think, where, you know, for Wimbledon, it was about you know, having a big serve, getting to the net and having a really good volley, which I don't necessarily think we can say as much kind of nowadays, but certainly I think back then you look at the players who were, were doing really well, you know, Tim Hemman also a very, a very, very good uh, serve and volleyer on his day. Um, it just showed, it showed me that, you know, there's obviously different types of kind of individual brilliance, but for me, this really kind of encapsulated that moment, that era where, you know, serve and volley was still, was still king on the grass courts. Yeah, that was the big thing, wasn't it? And I think, as you said, like coming in as a wild card, even Izovic, you know, it's, everyone loves the underdog, don't they? And he he rose. I think he lost a bit of favour in one of the matches. You know, he was, wasn't was particularly well. He is quite sort of vocal, quite emotional. Um, and Wimbledon crowds don't always go with that, you know, if you're, you know, potentially going to be booed. Obviously, he broke hearts when he beat Henman. But then, as you say, it was this roller coaster that actually we all joined, you know, him on. And the fact that there was the rain and it was played on the Monday, the final, which is the People's Monday. And I think they sold tickets for for fans queuing up. You know, I think probably made it all the more special. And as you say, the actual occasion itself was just wonderful to have been part of. 
Yeah, I thought it was, it's also classic. You know, you, you had to put in a, a Tim Henman match. You know, you, you <laughs> put in both of those, uh, both of those Ivanisevich matches. And I like at the beginning of each chapter as well, you put the date that it take, took place on. I think anyone who maybe didn't know about this match, you could tell it was kind of an epic because it's got, you know, 6th of July, 7th of July, 8th of July. The fact that it took place over three days because Straight of away. all the rain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an instant sign that it was, um, you know, it was a bit of a classic. I also remember that final because I swear Pat Rafter had a bald spot on his head and I can always <laughs> for some reason I always have that etched in my etched in my brain now on, when he was spot. when he was playing on court yeah um but also for me it was the match I was kind of like or it was the tournament I was like Wimbledon really really needs a roof yeah I mean a debatable question would Tim Henman have have won Wimbledon if if we'd had a roof 20 years ago who knows that is a talking point I tell you that is <laughs> you go on but and um, going back to your point Joel I mean I, I totally agree it was wonderful to see even Isvich, um in that box when Djokovic won because I think that was just a smile on his face and you could just see it as they were a team weren't they you know tennis is such a solitary game but that was a real team event and it was brilliant and I mean, for, for my kind of pick for this, um, for, for these sorts of categories, I suppose, just like individual matches and, and brilliance from players. I actually went for the, uh, the Sharapova Serena Williams final in 2004 oh, okay. because yep. for me, this was, um, quite unexpected. And I remember I was quite young at the time, but it's, I think it was such a kind of dominant performance from Sharapova against, you know, Serena, who everyone thought was going to win her, like her third Wimbledon on the, on the trot. And for Sharapova to kind of outpower Serena and yeah. um, just totally fearless, you know, she was only 17, this her first Grand Slam final, such a young age to just kind of dominate. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, she was never able to do that again because I think she only beat Serena like once after that time. And it was a very one sided rivalry in the end. But it kind of set up the sort of tension between the two of them um, kind of forever after. And I just thought, you know, to come and win Wimbledon at, you know, such a young age, we've seen it obviously happen before, but it was, um, I just sort of thought of remarkable performance. So I was quite pleased you included that one. And as you say, I mean, Sharapova, it was sort of definitely the age was more celebrities around in tennis, I think, as well, which because potentially people hadn't heard of her before Wimbledon. And then everyone was talking about her afterwards. And as you say, the press then got hold of this rivalry that actually was never, well, I say never really was, but it was certainly hyped up more than they actually played. Um, but yeah, there was this young, fearless player taking on Serena Williams you know good for her in terms of just taking on the giant of Serena yeah it was uh it was a memorable match because you know, we don't see Serena Williams lose many kind of grand slam finals particularly in that era of of Serena Williams but I also remember it for uh the uh presentation afterwards I always remember there was that awkward moment where was Sharapova like phoning her she was like phoning her mum or she's phoning someone in her family that's right. Yeah, she wanted to let them know. Yeah. It it really sort of, I think, showed me this sort of new generation, this sort of new kid on the block with this technology, you know, phoning her mum. You know, this wasn't kind of like, oh, I'm going to go walk up the, uh, you know, to the player's box. This was like, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to get out my phone and, and call my family. And how brilliant for her, you know, she sort of t- didn't necessarily register th- the occasion in terms of, well, you know, I'm keeping everyone waiting or, you know, the presentation, everyone's standing waiting for me. She, It was just that pure, unadulterated 
you know, excitement of winning and she had to tell her family about. Yeah. And I mean, she was also like the first Russian player to win that title. Um, you know, the fact that she just didn't crack under pressure, I just thought, like, you don't see that very often. You, we saw on, on the weekend, like Karolina Pliskova freezing at the start of that final and, you know, not able to cope with the emotions. So for, for what Sharapova did just to come out of the blocks, you know, 6-1, 6-4, it was a very um, dominant performance. And I just thought, yeah, that for me, that was... Um, a very memorable, very, very memorable match. I don't know if, Abby, you had um, one that you wanted to kind of share with us as well. So I think probably mine was um, the Gonzalez-Pazarel um, match, Ricardo Pancho-Gonzalez. Um, and that was 1969 because you, it was almost like two polar opposites. You had um, Gonzalez, who was over 40, 41, I think. He was called the Aging Lion. Um and then you have Charlie, who was 25 years old. Um, and they, they, they knew each other. They trained together, sort of, they, Paz, uh, but had been coached by Gonzalez. So, you know, he knew exactly where his strengths and weaknesses were. Um, and it, it, it was a memorable match in terms of how long it went on for as well, because I think the first set, um, both players held their serve in the first 45 games. So, you know, and this, this was a year, this was before chairs had been introduced as well, um, for players. So, you know, I, hats off to both of them. Um, Gonzalez lost the first set and then I think complained about the lighting. It was all very emotional, but the umpire said play on. He lost the second set and then stormed off. Um, and I think Charlie then had to help the the ball boys you know pick up all his rackets and take them back out into the changing rooms um and I think everyone probably thought coming back the next day it was going to be a matter of time for Gonzalez you know it would be over quite quickly he was two sets down you know he was finding it a struggle he was obviously a lot older than Charlie and then they came back and it was just like an epic battle and I think you know, what a guy to to really dig deep. There were times when he was leaning on his racket because he was so exhausted. Um, but he never, he didn't ever lack that attack or the power. And I think potentially then Charlie lost the confidence um, and uh, Gonzalez went on to, to win the third set and the fourth set and then the fifth set. And I think that was just a, a remarkable comeback um a long comeback to could sort of have all that energy as well it must have been physically exhausting um but he was adamant you know he wasn't gonna to give up without a fight and he didn't and he won I think it was like 112 games in total over that match it was amazing yeah I mean looking at the score line alone this is you know pre tie breaks but 22 yeah. 24 1 6 16 14 yeah. 6 3 11 9 I mean that's just insane um the Isma Mahu of the 1960s. It was basically, yes, it, he should have had a blue <laughs> plaque um, put out there because to hit, that was that was the record back then. Um, and I think actually after, um, I, th- I want to say sort of later, maybe sort of 71 or 79, they eventually brought in that, that 12-point tie break. So um, in any set except the final, so if you reach six all. So... But um, good on him. And I sort of think, you know, sometimes we do, we we don't put 
tennis players out to pasture too soon, but we don't necessarily give them the credit. And actually, he he came with a lot of experience um, and a lot of grit and a lot of fight and a lot of determination. And I think that that's why I included that one because he just yeah he wasn't gonna give up. I suppose Roger Federer will be, you know, looking for a bit of Gonzalez well, inspiration yeah. <laughs> as he approaches, well, his 40th birthday this year. So yeah, not so far maybe off. he will, maybe he will, exactly. And I think, well, Federer will, like Djokovic said, you know, they are the top three and I just think they will just, and they have dominated tennis for so long. I hope they continue to do so. And we also, I mean, just talking about the, the big three and, and um, the fact that, you know, they've obviously been at the top so long, had so many fantastic matches and rivalries. This kind of brings us on to the matches in your book that talk about a bit more about those rivalries, because, I mean, my one, I alluded to this earlier, but it's, it's got to be, you know, Federer and Nadal in the final in 2008, yeah. um, which was just, you know, many people do say that kind of it's generally considered the greatest match of all time I think it had a a bit of everything you know this sort of it was their third straight Wimbledon final in a row it was you know could Rafa dethrone Federer on on his you know home turf on the on the grass courts and you know you had the rain delays the fading light uh, you know Rafa had had match points in the fourth set and we were going five and I mean for me this just kind of sends shivers down my spine or like say, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited talking about would this yeah. have been your number one if you were doing a 50 would this have definitely been your number one then yeah if I had to rank them um definitely yeah. number one um yeah. and yeah I mean I mean if Rafa had lost possibly not um <laughs> I have to caveat that but um I mean it's just I think you know and what is great about the book is that there are matches like this that most people probably are quite familiar with but then you've got matches like the Gonzalez one that you just mentioned which I wasn't aware of so I was you know it's, it was amazing to read about matches that I hadn't really come across you know because of um you know it just hasn't really been brought up so much in kind of our generation so um I mean what kind of what rivalries um uh, you've got Borg and McEnroe in there as well obviously the, the 1980 final were there any others that you um in. I mean, I, I mean, well, I'm looking at ladies now, and I'm looking at um, Navratilova and Chris Everett because I think, um, and I think she, they're phenomenal friends off court, rivals completely on court, um, and I think they've played each other 80 times or something over 16 years, and I think Navratilova just about um, tops the the scoreboard for the 43 wins over 37 I believe but um, yeah their rivalry so I, I put in their 1978 game Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Um, because it was, you know, Chris Everett was sort of the all-American star. She, Martina was a massive fan of hers, you know, had her post up on her wall where she was playing growing up um and it it and it just looked like um chris just in that match didn't quite have the appetite um for the title she had a new boyfriend um potentially there were other things happening in her life whereas you had martina coming on hungry like wanting to prove she had the stamina to win the skill to win um and she just grew stronger and stronger, I think, as the match went on. Um, and that's why it was all of the beginning of the rivalry and it was to carry on, I think, to 1985. So fantastic testament to both of those ladies that they, they played each other so many times over the years. You know, it's a rivalry, I think, that is, has, yeah, has a massive, you know, legacy to it. And, you know, that, that final, particularly with Navratilova winning, I think it, it almost kind of set the, I think, precedent of, of how good how good that rivalry was go- was going to be, and I think you know I think what's interesting about these sort of rivalry matches is do they sort of realise what you know what is you know what is in store for them on a tennis court you know playing out to star studded crowds over and over for you know decade decade and a half plus, um, and you know I think for you know for that match for Navratilova to come out on top, even though you probably say the form book particularly in terms of the rankings it was going to go with Chris Everett, have kind of Navratilova, just that sort of winning instinct, sort of just kind of take over. And I think it just shows that, you know, with finals, sometimes kind of form book can just go out the window. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. Totally spot on. And Navratilova, you know, growing up with a poster of Chris Everett on her wall, you know, in Czechoslovakia, that's, I, I love those sort of tales where they've got that hero and, they're playing that hero years to come and then they're beating that hero and it's just it's sort of like a full circle isn't it yeah and we're getting quite a lot of that happening at the moment with you know Federer and Serena being you know in the twilight of their careers and all these young you know young players coming up and you know playing against them and um no absolutely and I mean the um I think Joel your your favorite um, rivalry from from this book was probably the, the Borg McEnroe mm. 1980. I mean, the tie break in that match is always <laughs> put on in a rain delay. What well, used to be before the roof. <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's right. You know, on repeat, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, eighteen sixteen, wasn't it? I think in that tie break. I mean, both those you know those rivalries, Borg McEnroe, Nadal, Federer, both have that iconic tie break. There's something about tie break, isn't there, that sort of cements a a rivalry but again that that Borg McEnroe kind of contest really game was a sort of contrast in styles I think you know with Borg you know and I think what the, the book does well encapsulating is the fact that you know Borg very like an ice cool sort of customer and you know McEnroe coming into it you know known as a kind of a super brat and again you know you talk about kind of the stories uh you know that, that unfold and yeah there might be kind of stories building up to matches but I feel like the audience's perception of players kind of changed during that match. And, you know, the book talks about the fact that, you know, McEnroe was almost kind of booed coming onto court, but X number of hours later coming off of it, even though he came off of it as the loser, in, in many regards, he came off, uh, you know, applauded as a winner. 
a winner yeah absolutely and as you say how the audience sort of went full circle with him as mm. this super brat and then actually quite rightly um you know gave him the recognition he deserved and and as you say that's like a, a whole journey that they've been on in one tennis match then isn't it yeah I mean that's just such a I mean you can't write a book can you called Wimbledon's greatest games without including the uh the Borg McEnroe but um I, I think mean, it would have been shot down had he yeah <laughs> not had, yeah I mean I could have got away with maybe an extra Steffi Graf on in there but I would have yeah I couldn't have not have had those two. no <laughs> I mean I um I just I do love it when you get such a contrast in styles like like you said and I, I still don't know if if I was if they were playing now like who of them I would have supported because I'm I'm still torn as to who I even when I watch back you know that tie break and that match I'm like I don't know who I you know if I was watching it live who I would have been drawn to more at the time um it's quite interesting and I think because they're so different I think you can applaud them both for for their individual styles and I think that's you know you've got the strong silent type and you've got the really emotional really you know enthusiastic and I think that that's brilliant and I think you can it's like our personalities you can veer from one to the other can't you so easily yeah and talking of personalities actually um one of the the facts that you know like you mentioned earlier you you wanted to include like doubles matches as well yes um, which I thought was really really good because you know so often the doubles gets overlooked which is you know not not fair in, in my opinion and um I do love how you've put in some of the really like unique partnerships that we've had mm. the um, random ones as well yeah. <laughs> because they should be celebrated and as you say you know doubles are really sort of coming on and I think the other thing with the book is I didn't want just to have finals which was quite tricky sometimes because a lot of them you know the really memorable occasions did happen on a final but um, otherwise you know that the doubles the, the first round matches should all be celebrated and I well for, for, for me that the partnerships of the Woodies um, the Todd Woodbridge and the Mark Woodford was you know, such a unique partnership because, um, you know, it was their sixth. I think they were on course for their sixth um, Wimbledon win and when they came out in 2000. And I think the way they were welcomed out onto um, centre court, it was like Wimbledon knew they were just, yeah, they were the sweethearts. These are the Aussie, the Woodies. Everyone knew them. Everyone liked them. They were like the the partnership that everyone enjoyed watching. Um and so they, yeah, absolutely dominated um, Wimbledon for, for years. Yeah, because I wasn't, um, you know, I started watching tennis probably around that, that year. Of the, you know, the match that you picked was, I think, 2000. And yeah. I, I didn't know many of the people that used to play doubles then, but I knew the Woodies, you Woody, know, because they yeah. were so famous. And, you know, a bit like the Bryan brothers sort of became in, in the next generation, you know, they won an awful lot and yeah I like how you call them like the Anton deck of the tennis world um, or the Morecambe and Wise (laughs) that was quite a good um, comparison Um, I mean yeah like that partnership fantastic I think um, I I also love how you put the invitational doubles in there which isn't even you know one of the kind of really competitive events but the fact that you put one of the Barami matches in there uh, Mansell Barami I know know. the thing when you you think of Wimbledon and I think you've got to remember that as well it's not this it's not going to be this elitist book of just this top class it's got to feature the the personalities and the players that make Wimbledon what it is and the special occasion that it is and Barami he's just 
fantastic. Was he your choice then, Kim? With the, the yeah, when I saw that he was in there, because um, I think you had a match from like 2015 uh, where he was yes. playing with Henri Leconte, uh, who's uh, also quite a laugh as well. Um, and against Elting and Har- Harhus, I could never say his name, Har- Harhus, Harhouse, anyway. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I've seen Barami play at like the um, the Royal Albert Hall when he's done the like the seniors tour. And he is such a laugh. And you know, it's, it is sort of like a pantomime, you know, we don't really care what the score is. You just, you're there to, to see him do his thing. Exactly. And I mean, he has his own story as well. You know, the fact that he was from Iran and they banned tennis, he wasn't able to play and he only sort of joined the ATP, like at quite a late age. And, you know, he could have done a lot more, I suppose, in tennis, but what he's been able to do with his talent is, you know, fantastic. And yeah, I was really pleased that you'd included, um, you know, one of his matches. And I think when you look back at, I mean, I spent ages then looking back over videos of his his playing, you know, his games, and you think he must be so talented to play such clever shots that look so comical, you know, and you just think, God, this this man's talent, if it had have been harnessed in a straightforward, I don't know, straight down the line way, where could it have taken him? Yeah, it's sort of a lost opportunity, unfortunately, but... It's um again it's it's interesting with the, the sort of cross between like the mix of like politics and sport and you know how all these like geographical factors also come into play and um yeah I mean that's a, that's a whole other book isn't it I suppose a whole other bit. but brilliant for Wimbledon that he is there and he is that entertainment and he is very much part of the whole experience isn't he whenever he steps out onto court definitely he's one of those players I think that is you know he's known for his kind of trick shots and as you said it's it's very much like his his talent is kind of has manifested in that way and it's sort of interesting to think cool mm. you know, if his talent manifested in a different way where we, he would have ended up but I think you know what's so kind of perfect about doubles is that because of the you know opens up the tram lines it does enable to have these unique angles and these shots be able to play out and then you've got the added element of the you know, the chemistry between the the two players as well. And that can always kind of bring out, I think, the, you know, the crowd interaction. And um, Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of my kind of picks was, you know, Jamie Murray and Yelena Jankovic versus Jonas Bjorkman and uh, Molik of Australia. And for me, this was a match I, I actually reminded me kind of reading about it. I actually forgot Jamie Murray was the first Murray brother to win at Wimbledon. Yes, um, that's right, yeah. <laughs> And he was, you know, for me, this match very much had significance in the sense that for me, this really kind of kicked off or started really the mixed doubles sort of boom, I think, with with British tennis players. You know, we saw Neil Skupski the other day, uh, you know, win in a final that had Joe Salisbury, Harriet Dart. And I think for me, this really kind of kickstarted this kind of new kind of boom, this success period for British tennis and kind of particularly mixed doubles but again it's just fascinating to read about the fact that these two had literally never played before Yelena Jankovic didn't even know I think Andy Murray had a brother um yeah. <laughs> it was just it's just a bit it was just a bit bad they even got to we were even able to get to the final as far as they did I know and then there was all that um chemistry like you said you know the press build up with with the whole it was a it was a whole sort of occasion wasn't it every time they played but um yeah, and as you say, bizarre that they'd never played together, and yet had, had did so well. 
And I don't know if they played after that. I, th- I feel like, did they defend their title? I'm not sure. Um, but they, you know, I don't, uh, I guess this happens sometimes. You just scratch pairing, so they go and win. Yeah. And then it's, you know, yeah, like just done and dusted. But I mean, it's fantastic. I know Jamie went on and won it with Hingis, um, many years later, but when she kind of came back and did doubles again, but. Yeah, I thought that was, I remember, um, watching that at the time and they were just so, you know, having a, having a laugh, not taking it too seriously. And, you know, they won 6-1 in that third set. So that obviously proved a, a winning formula. Combination, whatever they had. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, I suppose, you know, we've also got matches, um, that are memorable for perhaps becoming iconic in their own right for, for setting records or making history and, I know we briefly mentioned this match earlier, but this is, I think, definitely another one that you you couldn't miss out because you know there is a there is a blue plaque for this for this match, isn't there? And and that is the the Isna Mahu one of, of yeah. twenty eleven. <laughs> Absolutely, and it was it was um, I was speaking to um, the BBC cameraman at the, the time when I was doing research into this because obviously everyone had known that you know the story behind it, the epicness of of it, and even if you didn't watch it from the beginning you you switched on the telly and it was still going on and it it just it built momentum didn't it as it went on as it quite rightly should but um yeah it was funny because I was chatting to the cameraman he was saying normally on the the BBC sort of press building that overlooks that that court you get one or two people sort of standing at the windows and then gradually he said as the game went on it was sort of getting two or three deep three or four deep and then you couldn't get a space at the window because no one wanted to leave in case it finished no one wanted to you know miss a single shot um because they knew that it was just something amazing was happening you know, it was an absolutely epic match. I, I actually think it's a bit of a Marmite match. I think there are some people out there who absolutely love it and it's epicness in terms of length and a number of games. But mm. I also think there are people out there who would say they absolutely hate it. And it's like the antithesis of, of tennis with, you know, Isner serving, you know, oh, loads and loads of aces and, yeah. you know, lots of free games and the fact that it was, you know, never ending and it sort of ushered in, you know, the, you know where we're at now, where we have this sort of tie break um, at kind of 12 set. all. Yeah. I mean, where do you, where do you kind of stand on that? I, I, like, I, I, I accept it as one of the greatest games and one of the most memorable well, games. Uh, I was going to but... say, that's why I included it because there was no way. I mean, it's such a memorable game, but this is the point <laughs> of the book, you know, it doesn't have to be that such um, top class, you know, game of tennis it is what it stands for you know what it sort of represents in in, at at that time at Wimbledon which was that everyone just could not switch off you know you just all wanted to watch didn't you there was no way you were going anywhere until you found out what was happening and then the next day you were tuned in because you wanted to find out what was happening yeah it was um I guess they must have just felt like it was like groundhog day again and again <laughs> every time they like went up to serve it was just I mean I was laughing to myself reading that chapter because you know there's just the sort of statistics alone are just hilarious like 70 68 in the oh, fifth God, yeah. over 11 hours long I mean you just wouldn't dream of of that happening like no. you know since I mean it hasn't happened since and it, it didn't really happen before so it's just I mean I know Mahu lost but he he must be happy to have taken his part, part in that absolutely and you've got to have matches like that that then make that 
shift you know in 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 changing and and how they brought in that you know that capping in the final set so I think actually it is that's why it should be um, celebrated absolutely and I mean the one I I also kind of that stood out I guess for making history um was you know you can't you can't you also you know you can't um publish a book in the UK I suppose and not include this one and that was Andy Murray like this was a non-negotiable as well in, uh, in imagine if I didn't yeah no absolutely <laughs> I mean to be fair I didn't go into it in great detail because part of me was like everyone it, sort of knows everything about it it was, it was such an iconic you know match and it everyone had built up to this and so in my mind I didn't I would try to keep it on a very even keel across the 50 that you know we were you know this wasn't going to be sort of 50 pages when every other match was you know two or three pages Mm. but I think it was just that that lives in mind to me was that just real absolutely animal roar that he did to the crowd that if you were watching and you could almost feel the vibration as that sort of I've done it I've absolutely done it and I think it just it sends shivers down my spine just thinking about how how much he celebrated that into such a sort of animal sort of very very basic sort of noise you know that, that came out of his mouth and it was just fantastic I mean, you look at what Novak Djokovic is doing, like at the moment on a tennis court, he's, you know, basically unbeatable, which I think looking back makes this victory as well so remarkable. And I mean, it's one of those where were you moments, like where were you when Andy Murray finally won Wimbledon and ended the, you know, the 77 year wait for, you know, a, a British man to win the singles title there. So, yeah, it was just absolutely sort of. A bonkers that when they when they show you know the, the final match point you always sort of have tears in your eyes when they you know replay it um when oh it kind of I was rolls sobbing my eyes out it was it was so emotional and the, the, the problem was I had to sort of put this in your book and I guess that's sort of how you can get away with it sometimes but because I know exactly where I was I know exactly who I was with and I was just sobbing my eyes out to a two-year-old who was sitting next to me who did not understand <laughs> what was going on did not understand the significance of of this history in the making of anything like that and just couldn't work out why I was just you know not making her dinner but literally you know a, a, sob- a sobbing mess next to her. <laughs> Um, oh. But I think for me, uh, the history one was probably Rod Laver and, and John Newcomb, and that was in 1969. You know, you had Rod, who was he'd won the first two major titles of the Grand Slam that year, the, the Australian and the French Open. So he was on his way to, to, to get all four again. And this would be, if he did it, it would be his second um, historic Grand Slam. And I just think. Even you, you must go into that Wimbledon. Uh, I don't know what it's like, but for Rod, you know, thinking you've almost got that weight on your shoulders. Could he be on for a second one? Um, but it was, you know, it was very touch and go. He had, um, I think, it went one of the early rounds. He nearly went out to a, rel- you know, a very unknown player, um, and then somehow sort of brought it all back um, and and went on to win and beat. John Newcomb and I just think he won four majors um that year but he did that twice and I just think god just 
that to me is something that is just mind blowing if you if you then sort of unpick it for what it is also quite relevant with the fact that Djokovic is you know three quarters of the way to doing that well, um, exactly now yeah. you know this year so um it, it's funny how you know I suppose Rod Labour probably thought that that would never be done uh again perhaps that it, it might very well you know be be matched this year but you know whether Djokovic will do it twice is is another thing so he's and, probably... you know absolutely it could be done but you know this was 1969 mm. or 2021 so it's been a, a long time since yeah. anyone has come close to to sort of doing that you know so yeah absolutely and was there any I mean obviously you've included 50 matches um including a few Steffi Graf ones uh which was uh you know sort of a personal thing but obviously she deserves to be in there but oh, were, there, <laughs> were there matches that you really like really wanted to put in and you just had to you know the, the cutting board they just had to go because it you know needed to be 50 matches and not like 52 <laughs> I don't really think I mean again like I said it was hard to because I didn't want to when I started out I didn't want to just have finals you know I wanted to make this a really sort of varied and broad collection but actually you it's the finals that make up a lot of the the game. So potentially there were a couple of first round matches that were equally exciting that, you know, favourites, top seeds got knocked out of that could have been included, you know, in terms of being memorable for that reason. Um, So, so yeah, there there were a few, but I, I'm pretty happy with this, with the selection really. And kind of moving on from the book, talking about tennis in in general, we have had a couple of listener questions kind of get in touch with us um, with some questions for you. So I'm going to have I'm going to give you one. So Adam got in touch with us on email and he asked us, um, Abby, if you could write a tennis biography of a past or present player, (gasps) who would it be and why? Oh, Adam, I think you might have already guessed my answer to this. <laughs> I think we can guess the answer as well. I, yeah, I did. I contacted her and um, asked whether she would be available for the forward and I for the book and didn't hear anything. But yeah, it would it would be Steffi Graf, potentially because she had, as you say, when you're growing up, you have people that just have a an influence on your life. And I think... It's not that I'd met her. It's not that she, you know, did anything momentous in my life, but she just had that. I was just mesmerized watching her. So Steffi Graf would be, I would love to work with her. What about you guys? I think I can guess yours. That would be obvious. Oh, yeah. Rafa Nadal. Absolutely. Joel, I'm guessing you'd say Andy Murray, but I might be wrong. Yeah, it probably would be Andy Murray or maybe even Tim Henman. Um, Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, As I say, you always sort of gravitate, don't you, towards players that you kind of grew up with. And for me, that very much was, yeah, Tim Henman. And I think it would be interesting to kind of reflect on, you know, how he handled, I think, the kind of pressure that he was kind of put under pretty much, you know, in that era with him. Yes, Greg Rosetsky was about as well. Um, but when it came to Wimbledon, that yeah. you know, the pressure yeah, that he was un- under, um, particularly from the media, and the fact that he got to what I think four four semi-finals, pretty good going. So uh, yeah, I think it would have to be uh, Tim Hammond. I think he, Adam's question is hard because I think you'd have to, you know, sit down with all of the people when you'd all of them as many as you could. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've got, got 
Uh, we've got another question for you as well. Uh, with This is from Jane on Twitter. Um, she said, what's the best way to watch a match at Wimbledon? Uh, is it with a glass of Pims or strawberries and cream? Or is there something else that you would perhaps recommend? Oh, good Lord. That's a good one. <laughs> plenty of sun cream, I would say. Definitely plenty of sun cream. Oh, yeah, don't get burnt. Yeah. Um, because I've fallen for that one before. And, yeah, one of the outside courts have just been absolutely roasted. Pims, I don't think you can go wrong with Pims, can you? Let's be honest. Um, and a sun hat, I would say. They would be my sort of staples. <laughs> very, very cautious. In the, and, in the style uh, of Baz Luhrmann, wear sunscreen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, just uh, also, I mean, you mentioned how much you kind of admired Steffi Graf. Is there a player that's sort of playing in the current generation that you sort of gravitate towards? When you're watching Wimbledon in 2021, is there someone that's got your eye? Well, I mean, you can't fail to not mention um, Emma. Um, you know, she is just how exciting a player is that girl to watch 18 years old. And I think for me, she sort of was brilliant this year because she got people talking again about Wimbledon, perhaps that we're more focused on I don't know, the Euros or the Olympics. It sort of brought the focus back into, you know, actually we have some fantastic young British tennis players and we should all be following and watching and seeing what they can do. I know it's going to be really exciting to see how she gets on. I think Develop, she's taken yeah. a wild card into San Jose in a few weeks' time. So it'll be interesting to see how she develops yeah. um, on the tour. Final question, Abby, a question we ask all our guests. We are a British tennis podcast, so we need to ask you the most British question possible, which is, how do you take your cup of tea? Or, or do you even drink tea? Are you a coffee person? I, I cannot stand coffee. I am totally a tea drinker. And I was thinking about this because I'm like, I'm a bit old school. And I, I hope this doesn't make me sound like really old. But I my ideal cup of tea would be in a teapot, quite strong. And I'd pour it into a cup and saucer. And I'd probably make a builder's mug of tea in a little china cup. So, oh, I love that. <laughs> so... Um, I, yeah, I would drink tea until the cows came home, basically. In fact, I'm going to have a cup of tea after this recording because I feel it's it's well earned with a biscuit as well because you're British, you can't have tea without a biscuit, can you? What sort of tea bag are you going for? What flavour is your flavour I'm of choice? I'm a PG Tips girl. I cannot cope with anything herbal or anything fancy. I am a, yes, a PG Tips through and through does this make me sound awful does it <laughs> no i think actually <laughs> the vast majority sad that i thought about this so much <laughs> the vast majority of our guests i think have actually said builders tea yeah. um which proves you know you can't beat the the kind of original can you so i'm i, I don't understand people who have hot milk i just don't get it i have to have it brewed for four minutes and and it has to look like builders tea yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have a variety, but a classic builders is, you know, very hard to beat. So, um, yeah, we will add your uh, suggestion, your, your tip <laughs> yeah. onto our brew board. I'm, I'm loving the cup and saucer as well. I it's think that's bit... very civilised well, way to have it. Know, so. that, that's me all through and through, let's be honest. Tim's <laughs> <laughs> to begin the chat with, cup of tea to finish it with. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's hope our listeners are kind of cracking open their pims while they're uh, listening to this. But um, well, let's finish off now. 
um, Abby, and we'll let you get on to your to your cup of tea. Um, but before we go, obviously, um, your book is out now. Um, so where can listeners, uh, you know, if they want to buy Wimbledon's Greatest Games, where where can they do so? Yeah, so it is available on Amazon, um, I believe, and that is an Amazon Prime. So I'm pretty much sure if you order it, it will come the next day. It is in Smith's. Um, I think it's available else in other bookstores online, but I'm not quite sure where else. So I would, yes, Google and you will find. But certainly in Smith's, it's been in their shops um, and on Amazon. We'll make sure to put a link to where it's available on Amazon and WH Smith's in the description. So listeners, if you're interested in purchasing Wimbledon's greatest games, honestly, it was such a, it was so fun and illuminating, I think, to, to kind of read through all the different matches. So if you're listeners and you want to kind of get up to speed on all of the greatest games that have happened at Wimbledon, um, we'll put a link in the description. And I think, yeah, and I think listeners as well, sorry, Joel, to interrupt, but it is a very much a, from a fan's point of view, I am no expert in the world of tennis. <laughs> I don't profess to be, um, you know, any sort of, top dog in terms of what I would rate but this is meant to be and I think why it works is a real walk down memory lane and a fun um, look back at some of the games that have happened um, at Wimbledon and I think you know if you can remember that that it's not always about the the world-class tennis that is played in those matches but what they represent definitely and listeners i hope you've enjoyed listening to this latest episode of the book club remember to subscribe to the passing shot tennis podcast on your podcasting platform of choice whether that's apple Podcasts, spotify Castbox, stitcher you can also listen to us on the download tennis.com app and if you have been enjoying listening to the show and you want to help the show out make sure to leave us a rating and comment and you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Passing Shot Pod. So do give us a like and a follow if you don't already. And you can also email us on PassingShotPod at gmail.com. Once again, Abby, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real treat having you on to take us through on a whistle stop tour of Wimbledon's <laughs> greatest games. Oh, well, thank you for having me, guys. Real pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, we will be back on Monday evening with our next tour catch up. So I hope you can join us for that. And we will see you again soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.